Let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, and it's good to have my sister-in-law here, and um, I can honestly say I am her favorite brother-in-law in the world, only because I'm her only brother-in-law. If it wasn't for that, I'm certain I would not be her favorite, but all right, Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. Lord willing, this evening, um, I'll be bringing a message, if the Lord allows, on the world's greatest evangelist. And I want to encourage you to come back tonight if you don't know who that is. And you might be surprised. And um, I'm not going to tell you until tonight. And as long as my family doesn't tell you who it is, you'll have to come back tonight to find out. But the world's greatest evangelist. And um, praying for the day. Hebrews chapter 7, if you're already there, <clears throat> verse number 11. Hebrews is not one of those books that uh, you read quickly. It's a very thought-provoking book. Uh, the author of Hebrews is uh, unknown. Some people believe a few different men uh, authored the book of Hebrews. But suffice to say that the Holy Spirit of God certainly inspired the book. And it is what God intended to have written in this particular book. Uh, it's, very, it's very eloquently written. It uses a lot of uh, vocabulary that some of the more simple books did not use. And because of that, sometimes it's a little bit difficult to follow. My daughter started school the other day, and uh, she has English or world literature, uh, world literature, I guess. And um, she, one of the things she has to read is a Shakespearean play. And we opened up to the first page, and Mom was one of the characters, and I was one of the characters, and Liz was one of the characters, and we read about one paragraph, and Liz said, I don't know what in the world they just said, and uh, because of the way it was written. And I want to say this, Hebrews, if you'll take the time to read it, is one of the richest books. Uh, we uh, printed a book years ago, several years ago, by F.E. Marsh, and the title of the book was The Way into the Holiest. It's a commentary on the book of Hebrews, probably one of the most powerful books I've ever read on the book of Hebrews. But a tremendous uh, truth that is portrayed throughout the entire theme of the book of Hebrews. We're going to look at some of that this morning. And I want to ask you to indulge for just a few moments this morning. I'm going to need to take about 15 minutes to teach some things and to lay some groundwork before we get to the message. And I need, to, I need you to hang in there with me because it'll be a little bit deep at some points. But it's important that you have the foundation in order to be able to get the message this morning. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 11. <clears throat> the Bible says, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed there is made of necessity a change also of the law, for he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest who is made not after the law of carnal commandment but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
For there is barely a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because that they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest came, became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. Uh, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. Father, we pray now that you'll bless the message. Lord, help us to articulate clearly the truth this morning. And Lord, such a needed truth in this day that we live. I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in hearts inwardly as we speak outwardly. And Lord, make everything about what we're going to be speaking on this morning clear and easily understood. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He said that the day that they sinned, they would surely die. And of course, we know the story of Adam and Eve sinned, and by that one man's sin, the Bible says that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. <clears throat> we sin, not, uh, or we don't, we're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are born sinful. We have a sin nature. We are carnal in nature. God had a plan all the way back in the Garden of Eden for the redemption of man. And I don't know about you, but I am excited that God had a plan of redemption. Because the truth of the matter is, once Adam sinned and his spirit died within him, and then we are all born into sin, there is no way for us to get reunited with God and to live in eternity in heaven with Him one day if it is not for His plan. And His plan was to send uh, Jesus Christ as a sinless, perfect sacrifice and to shed His blood on Calvary and to sprinkle it on the altar in the mercy seat in heaven as a covering and as what the Bible calls a propitiation for our sins. He has fully redeemed us and we can have this full redemption if we will simply place our faith and our trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, until the time that Calvary took place, God instituted some laws. And He said these laws need to be fulfilled. There needs to be a priesthood order. There needs to be some men that can come on behalf of the nation and on behalf of the people and make sacrifice to God. And the purpose of the sacrifice was for atonement, and it was a picture, it was a step of faith, if you will, for those in the Old Testament looking forward to the cross of Calvary, saying we know that the Messiah one day will come and that He will die on the cross for our sins 
And until he does, we are symbolizing it by these sacrifices. God instructed that there be a tabernacle built when they were in the wilderness and later on a temple. And it had to be modeled specifically. And God told Moses to be careful to model it exactly as he said. Because as we'll see here in the book of Hebrews, the tabernacle and the temple both were a pattern of those things that were not built by man, those things that are up in heaven. There is a mercy seat up in heaven. There is an altar up in heaven. And the tabernacle and the temple that were built down here on earth were simply a shadow or a picture of the things that were in heaven. And the sacrifice was simply a picture of those things that were uh, to be taking place when the Lord shed His blood on Calvary. Now God makes a covenant with man. The problem with covenant, and we're going to take a few minutes to study this thing of covenant. The problem with covenant is man can never keep covenant with God. We will always break it. But covenant's not something we talk about much anymore. In fact, uh, we, uh, uh, we don't hardly ever uh, know what covenant is anymore. We use the word promise today, and it's really kind of small. But let me go through real quickly what the Old Testament covenant was. And by the way, it was a process that was established by God. And I'm getting excited about this because I know what I'm getting ready to say. So hang in there because it's going to get exciting here in just a minute. When God instituted covenant, it was something that was to be never broken. Ever. In fact, we today still have some things that we do in modern days that are still left over from the Old Testament practice of covenant. For instance, we have a marriage ceremony. Many times... It is called the marriage covenant. And the reason for that is it is a picture of the covenant that God has made with His church and with His uh, believers as His bride. It is something that is not to be broken. And when the problem that we have is that we cannot keep covenant with God, but covenant was something that was not ever to be broken. When David Livingston made it into the interior of Africa years ago, they sent in Dr. Stanley to find him. And uh, Dr. Stanley had to go through from the coast of Africa at that time, uh, just off the coast, there were nothing but cannibalistic tribes, vicious, violent tribes that would war with each other, and they would kill each other off, and they would shrink their heads, and they would eat their uh, bodies and drink their blood, and and these were the kind of tribes that there were. And uh, for white man to go all the way to the interior of Africa was literally unheard of. When Dr. Stanley finally made it in to where Dr. Livingston was, and of course the famous statement of Dr. Livingston, I presume, it was said that Dr. Stanley could roll up both of his sleeves and he could hold them into the air, and he had cut the covenant over 50 times. Now let me explain to you what covenant was. In a, in a covenant ceremony... Uh, the two partners that were going to be making covenant together would come together and they would sacrifice an animal. They would divide the animal into two halves and allow the blood to pool in the middle of them. And the sacrifice was uh, uh, something that was uh, to show the separation of these two and the only way for them to be joined, follow me on this, was through the blood. So one person would stand on the outside of the sacrifice over here, and one would stand on the outside of the sacrifice over here, and they would begin this covenant ceremony. The next thing that they would do is they would exchange coats. Now the purpose of exchanging coats was for the purpose of saying, 
we are no longer two individuals, but we are going to identify one with the other. All the authority that I have, I'm giving to that person, and all the authority that person has, I'm giving to them. By the way, Pastor just preached recently on Ahab and Jehoshaphat. Do we remember that message that he preached on that? And Ahab asked Jehoshaphat to wear his what? Everybody, anybody remember that message? To wear his robe, his royal robe. That was a common practice. That was not something unusual. And what he was doing by that was literally he was honoring Jehoshaphat by saying, I'm giving you my vesture, my authority, if you will. So there is an exchange of garments. The next thing they did is they would exchange weapons belts. They would always have a a sword or a dagger of some sort, and they would exchange weapon belts. And by doing so, what they were saying is, your enemies are now my enemies, and I will defend and I will fight for you just as if you were me, as I would defend myself against those enemies. The next thing that they would do is they would exchange names. And what they were saying by that is, we are dying as an individual, and we are now uniting as two are now becoming one. In the marriage ceremony, we exchange names, don't we? And we're saying that the two are now becoming one. Uh, we exchange uh, uh, possessions. We say, okay, what's yours is mine. My wife likes to tell me what's yours is mine and what's mine is mine. But uh, truth of the matter is, what belongs to her belongs to me and what belongs to me belongs to her because we are married. There's a covenant there. Then they would walk through the blood. They would do, uh, one of them would go one way, one would go the other way, and they would meet in the middle, and they would stand in the blood, and they would pronounce the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. And basically what they would say is, here's what I'm willing to do for you, and this is our agreement. Here's what we're covenanting together for. And if you decide that you're going to break covenant, may the same thing be done to you as was done to this sacrifice. And that's what they were saying by that. Covenant was not to be broken until death. If you were to look at the sacrifice from a bird's eye view and you were to watch as these folks walk, they would come and say the blessings and the cursings. And then they would continue the walk and they would end up on the opposite sides that they had come out on and it was making a sign of the figure eight or the sign of infinity, once again a symbol of the fact that this covenant was not to be broken. Then they would do what was called cutting the covenant. And what they would do is they would cut the hands or the wrists and they would allow the blood to mingle. Remember when uh, the white man came over to America and the native Indians were here? And they made a lot of peace treaties, didn't they? And one of the things that they did was they became blood brothers. Anybody remember reading about that or hearing about that? That's left over from the covenant. The problem was the Indians that were here in America understood covenant. The white men had long lost it. When you made a promise and you became blood brothers, you were not to break it to the point of death. When Dr. Stanley came to the first cannibalistic tribe, he was able to talk to the chief and he said, I want to cut the covenant with you. He cut the covenant and he joined blood and let his blood mingle. And since he did it with the chief of the tribe, what that meant was the next tribe he came to, All he had to do when he walked into the tribe was to hold his arm up and to show the cut on his arm. And the tribe knew, I cannot touch him because if if I'm to kill him, the entire tribe that he cut the covenant with will come after every one of us and they will fight until every last one of them is dead. He cut the covenant with over 50 tribes. 
No wonder uh, Dr. Stanley could walk through the heart of Africa with his arms raised. After they cut the covenant, they would take and they would put some uh, ash in it sometimes, or they would put some uh, dirt in it. And the reason for that was they never wanted it to heal completely. They wanted the scar to be there. Because they needed it as a sign and as a symbol of the covenant. Now follow with me for a moment. God had established an old covenant, an Old Testament covenant. In fact, He had established several of them. He established one with Abraham. He established one with Noah. He established one with Moses. And uh, we have these promises that God made, these covenants that God made. Now as we get to the book of Hebrews, the Bible says that the old law, the old covenant, was imperfect. It had sinners as priests, didn't it? They were born sinners, and even though they would sacrifice and purify themselves, at best they were imperfect priests. They had imperfect sacrifices. And so it was important that when Christ came on Calvary that He establish a new covenant. And we find as we get into this chapter, look with me in chapter number 9 for just a moment. Uh, I'm sorry, let's back up to chapter number 8, verse number 1. The Bible says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve under the example of... Uh, and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. Do you see that? Which was established upon better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Now, I want you to hold your place there and turn to chapter number 9 for a minute. The Bible says in chapter 9 and verse number 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered into once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and of ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause He is the mediator of the new... What's the next word there? What is it? Testament. In the Old Testament, all the time that it talks of covenant, it uses the word covenant. In the New Testament, at this point in Scripture, from this point forward, you will find that they use the word testament in place of the word covenant. In other words, there is a transitioning from Old Testament covenant to New Testament covenant, and they call the New Testament covenant the New Testament. By the way, that's why our Bible is divided into two halves, two parts. The Old Testament, right? and the New Testament. It's a covenant. God had an old covenant. It was imperfect. It was based on the law. And when He died on the cross of Calvary, He established a new covenant. It is not based on the law, but it is now based upon grace. 
Now watch with me, and this is amazing. This is the exciting part. Look with me in verse number um, 22 of chapter 7. By so much was Jesus made a surety. Do you see that word there? Surety of a what? Better testament. Now watch this. We have a covenant. God longs to establish covenant between you and I. We are two separate entities. We are two separate beings. We have been separated by sin. And God longs for us to be what? United with Him. By the way, we can only do it by coming through the blood. Amen? He longs for us to come to covenant. But the problem is, there is a penalty for breaking covenant, isn't there? And man cannot keep covenant. We've got a problem then, don't we? What are we going to do? In steps Jesus Christ. He stands on our side, on our behalf, and He says, Father, I will walk the covenant for Him. I will be the surety of this covenant. How many of you have ever bought a car for the very first time? Any of you ever do that? You have no credit? What do we do nowadays? Nowadays, if you have no credit, you have to get a what? A co-signer, right? A lot of times to get a loan. You know what a co-signer basically is saying? He's saying, listen, if that person fails to pay the bill, I'll take it as my own. It'll be mine. You know what Jesus Christ said when He became the surety of the New Testament? The better testament? He said, if Greg can't keep covenant with you, Father, I'll take it on my own. I'll keep it for him. Boy, I'm glad that Christ did that, aren't you? Because the truth of the matter is, I couldn't have done it. A better covenant. The day came when the Lord gave me a new garment. We sing that song, Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do was take off the old robe and put on the new. You know, there's a lot of theology in that little chorus. For the old robe was spotted, all tattered and torn. But the new robe was spotless. It had never been worn. When I got saved, when Christ walked that covenant for me, the day that I trusted Him as my Savior on my behalf, He said, Greg, you can have my robe. It's spotless. I've got a new robe. In fact, the Bible teaches us in the book of Ephesians that we are to put on the new man. A new robe. The day I got saved... The Lord said, you know what, Greg, you don't have to fight those battles anymore. I'll fight them for you. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Hold your finger here in Hebrews. Romans chapter 8, I want you to see this. But the day that I got saved, I want you to see what God did. Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 37. The Bible says, nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through Him. 
I'm not more than conquered by myself. But when my enemies became Christ's enemies, all of a sudden I became a conqueror. The day I got saved, when all of my battles are already won because of who's going to fight them for me, He has created covenant with me. My enemies are now His enemies. And now Christ is going to make us more than conquerors. And and then we find that we exchanged names the day that we got saved. The Bible teaches in in the book of uh, Acts chapter number 11 that they were called Christians first at Antioch. And I, I know that pastors mentioned this before. We are believers and I hope that we are Christians. To me, Christians means to be a little Christ or to be Christ-like. And even though we do believe and we have Christ as our Savior, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily like Christ, but I hope we are. Look with me in Revelation chapter 3 for a moment. Revelation chapter number 3, this is exciting. Revelation chapter number 3 and verse number 12. The Bible says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall, not, uh, he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new what? name. I was once a sinner, but I came pardoned to receive from my Lord. This was freely given, and I now found... By the blood I am made whole, there's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Oh, yes, it's mine. Because you see, when God looked at Greg Boer, my record showed sin. But I'm thankful today that my name was put into the Lamb's Book of Life, and I have a new name. Because God made covenant with me. I couldn't walk the walk of blood. When they stood in the middle and they pronounced the blessings and cursings, basically what God said was that He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But He goes on to say, He that believeth is going to be able to have salvation. But he that believeth not is condemned already. You don't have to do anything to be condemned. In other words, if you'll enter covenant with God, the blessing is there. But if you break that, you say, Brother Greg, I can't keep covenant with God. No, but Christ can on your behalf. When we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, you know what, I'll keep covenant for you. By the way, that's why we can't lose our salvation. Because for us to lose our salvation would mean that Christ would have to break covenant with the Father. And He cannot do that. Then He cut the covenant on Calvary. When they cut the covenant, they would always cut the wrist or the hand. They would intermingle the blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I am thankful that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is now mine. It covers my sin. And you know what? When Christ rose from the dead, even though He's God, He left the marks. After He rose from the dead, He went to Thomas and He said, See the prince, 
Put your hand in the scar of the side. Why? Because it's there for a remembrance. It's there for remembrance. Then the best part of the covenant is they had at the end of it a covenant meal. Oh, amen. Now we're talking our language, amen. We are Baptist. We love the covenant meal. And uh, we like to eat. And the covenant meal was usually bread and, and wine, fruit of the vine. They would come together and they would sup together and they would feed one another. By the way, there's so much in our weddings that we do today still like this. The cutting of the cake, the feeding of the cake to each other, the sipping of the punch or whatever you have at the wedding is all symbolic of the Old Testament covenant. The reception at the end is the covenant meal. The joining of the right hands while the vows are being taken. The processional representing the walk, the infinity walk of the covenant. The exchanging of the names, the exchanging of possessions, the exchanging of defense, uh, things to defend one another. It's a covenant. It's not to be broken. Now bear with me, and I want you to look with me if you will to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. We're almost done, and we're almost to the message, by the way. Don't worry, the message can be done in about three minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Right before Christ died, He met with His disciples in the upper room and had what we called the last what? The last supper. You know what that was? It was the covenant meal. Covenant meal. Verse number 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance. Remembrance of what? Remembrance of me for what I've done for you. I'm the surety of your salvation. I'm the one that has entered covenant with the Father on your behalf. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament. Do you see that? The New Testament in my blood. What's he saying? It's the New Covenant. This is what I'm establishing. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat of this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Every time we come to the Lord's table and take of the Lord's supper, it is part of the covenant meal of remembrance. This is what the Lord has done for me. He is the surety. He's the one that walked that infinity walk. He's the one that stood in my place and made covenant with a holy God on my behalf. You say, Brother Greg, why is all that important? Now we're at the message. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, 
in verse number, uh, let's back up to verse number 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Does that mean we are going to be perfect? No. But when he is the surety, when he is the one that is the guarantor of the covenant, when God looks at us, he sees his son. He sees perfection, doesn't he? Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say His flesh. In other words, after all of this, God has opened the veil to allow us access right into the very throne room of God. We don't have to go through a priest anymore. Amen? I can get on my knees. I can stand where I want to. I can be driving a car down the road and be in the very presence of the throne room of God at a moment's notice by simply calling out to Him, Father. I'm excited about that. Because of all this, now look what He says. Verse number 22, Let us draw near. Let us draw near. I would hate to think one day when we get to heaven that we would be able to realize all that God did for us and to hang our heads in shame as we said, Lord, when I was on earth, that really wasn't important to me. God wants us to draw near to Him. He's done everything that there is to do in order for us to be saved. He, he set up the covenant. He set up a way for us to be saved. And, and even when He knew we couldn't keep covenant, He sent His own Son to be the surety of it, to be the guarantor of it. He's done all there is to do for salvation and for us to walk through this life and say, Lord, I don't want any part of salvation. I'm not interested in the things of God. Oh, how sad the day when we will stand before Him and say, God, I just wasn't interested. Those of us that are Christians, that are saved, that have trusted Christ as our Savior, can we draw near to Him? Can we love Him more today than we did yesterday? And can we love Him more tomorrow than we did today? He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's several things He's going to ask us to do. Number one, He's going to ask us to draw near. Number two, He's going to ask us to hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. We're supposed to hold fast our profession. Not supposed to be doubtful, not supposed to be wishy-washy, not supposed to be an on-fire, excited Christian one day and then a cold, lukewarm Christian the next day. But we are to hold fast. We're to cleave to it. Why? Because there's a covenant we're entered into. There's something that we can anchor ourselves to that is unchanging and will never change. I have anchored my soul. We almost sang it as a choir special this morning, but we weren't sure of it. I have anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I'll sail the wide seas no more. 
The tempest may sweep o'er the wild stormy deep, but in Jesus I'm safe evermore. Why? Because He's the surety. Draw close, draw near, hold fast. In verse 24 of chapter 10, let us consider one another. I'm to draw near to God. I'm to hold fast to my faith. And I'm to consider my brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider them how, Brother Greg? To provoke them to love and to good works. I'm to encourage you to love and to good works. You know what? You're supposed to encourage me to love and to good works. Because of all that Christ has done for us. Draw near. Hold fast. Cause each and every one of us to draw closer in love and good works. And the last thing he asks us to do, number 25, verse 25, I want you to look at it. We've heard this verse quoted so many times by preachers who are advertising or promoting the evening service on a Sunday. We reach up and turn our, our spiritual hearing aid off every time we hear it quoted. But can I tell you this? There are four things that God asks us in light of the covenant that He has made with us. Is it too much for Him to ask these things? The fourth one. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. God made a way when there was no way. God said, I know that I know that there's no way Greg could ever save himself. There's not enough good he can do. I know if he tried to enter covenant with me, it wouldn't last probably a few minutes and he'd break it. Then I'd have to give him the penalty of the covenant. He said, I'm going to send my son and I'm going to let him enter the covenant for Greg. And if Greg will just come through the blood. If he'll just come and say, Lord, I'm going to let you on my behalf. We call it accepting Christ as our Savior. But the truth of the matter is, it's not up to us to accept Christ's sacrifice. Did you notice that? It's up to God to accept the sacrifice. It's either acceptable or an unacceptable sacrifice. Well, then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to put our faith in that sacrifice. We're supposed to say, Lord, if you've done that for me and you're offering that to me, I'm trusting that for my salvation. I'm trusting your shed blood on Calvary for my salvation. Nothing else. Not the works of the law. That was the Old Testament. That was the Old Covenant. That was an imperfect covenant. But I'm going to trust by faith the sacrifice that was made on my behalf. 
Let's not forget that Christ is the surety for our sins. If you're here this morning, you say, Brother Greg, truth of the matter is, I don't come to church very often. I don't have a whole lot to do with the Lord. I want to tell you this. The Lord certainly has a whole lot to do for you. He's done so much for you. And if you'll let Him, He'll do some more. He'll save your soul. He'll give you a home in heaven for all of eternity if you'll let Him. You say, Brother Greg, what do I have to do? Just simply put your faith in Him. Just trust Him. Say, Lord, I'm not trusting my works to get me to heaven any longer. I'm trusting Your shed blood on Calvary. And that alone. Oh, the joy that is in a Christian's heart. If you're here this morning and you're saved, it ought to excite us. And we ought to look at those four things that He asks of us. And says, because of this, these four things. Draw near. Hold fast. Consider one another. Provoke them to love and to good works. And let's not forget the assembling of ourselves together. I'll be real frank with you. I think Sunday school ought to be as packed out as Sunday morning. And I think Sunday night ought to be as packed out as Sunday morning. And I think Wednesday night ought to be as packed. You, you want to give pastor a shock of his life? Let's have this many people Wednesday night in the church service. You say, why? Because God has done something miraculous for us. And He's asked it of us. Oh, that we would just have the joy in our hearts of what Christ has done. I want to invite you. Brother Ron's going to come in just a moment and sing a hymn of invitation. And we do this only for the purpose of giving you an opportunity to respond to the preaching. If you're here this morning, you say, Brother Greg, I've never heard anything like that before. I never heard that I was a sinner. I never heard that I needed to come to Christ through the blood of the Lord Jesus for salvation. You can come this morning, my friend, during the invitation. I promise you we would not embarrass you in any way. But if you'd step out of your pew and come forward while we're singing, we'd be glad to take the Word of God and show you how you can leave this place today having put your trust in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There may be some Christians today that have kind of backslid or gotten away from the Lord and maybe have not drawn as near to Him as they need to. Maybe this morning you need to come and say, Lord, I just want to draw nearer. I want to rededicate my life to You. Brother Ron's going to come and sing and the altars are open. If God's spoken to your heart, would you come this morning?